Well, some of the best studies we have during, well, yes, it has to be better than yesterday, right, Drew? Is that what you, yeah, that's what I thought you were saying. So uh, hopefully we can uh, find our stride here uh, this morning. And I do say about Sundays, you know, I, it takes me a little bit of time to get comfortable uh, when I'm in a new place preaching to different faces than I'm used to at home. It's just, it's a totally different experience. And so when I go on the road, it takes me a little bit to get warmed up and to get acclimated. So uh, there may be some uh, truth to what you said there about hitting my stride anyway. Uh, I'm excited about this uh, period of studies this week and to talk about the last time I did morning studies was at Campbell Road in Garland and I did King Asa and I had three studies it went really well and I said I'm, I'm gonna try that again uh, I enjoyed that so much and I need a refresher uh, on the life of of King Asa and particularly the the kings of Judah now I don't mean this to be a lecture this morning I you're you're getting sermons on yesterday and through the week so I, I'm going to get your feedback and and I want to make this historical information relevant to our experience in life because I, I think that's what these stories are designed to do we're supposed to learn lessons about how to live our lives trusting in God and, and learning from the failures of people who, in this case, started well but ended poorly. And so we're going to try to make relevance to our world as we study these things. And if you can think of anything along that line that you'd like to share when we get more toward the end of this, I, I want you to do that. Okay, I'm going to assume some familiarity with the kings of Judah and Israel, particularly as it follows the three monarchs who reigned over all Israel. Somebody tell me who the three kings over all of Israel were. That's the easiest question you're going to get. Okay, Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, about how long did the United Kingdom last under those kings? Oh, that's a little bit trickier question, isn't it? 120 years, just go 40, 40, 40. That's, uh, they all lasted about 40 years. Interestingly, Asa's reign is 41 years. And so roughly the same amount of time as those three kings. And so we're looking at about uh, 1050 B.C. to 930 was the United Kingdom. And then things fell apart. And who were those two guys that started it all? Rehoboam and the Boams, uh, the Boams, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and neither one of them were much to speak of. Uh, they both had significant spiritual problems, and particularly Jeroboam, it's every successive king continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I think that's said, I don't 13 times, I'm pulling that one out of the air this morning, it's, it's a good number of times. So, how many times have you seen a list of the kings? This may be hard to see uh, for some of you, but uh, the orange is a not happy face, and the yellow is a happy face, which I think you can delineate that. And notice the kings of Israel, that's not a, neither one is a complete list, but I wanted to show you something here. Uh, so, in Israel, it's just all, it's all bad. Uh, not one of them served the Lord faithfully because they all continued in the sins of Jeroboam 
the son of Nebat. However, I will give one of them a so-so. And, and that's Jehu, the son of Nimshi. One of my favorite things about Jehu. They saw him coming in a chariot and they say, it's the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, because he driveth furiously. Is that what he says about you? That's funny. Uh, Nova pleads guilty. But there's a couple that live down where I do uh, in southern Tomball. And so we'll see each other periodically on the road as we head to the church building. You know, because we leave about the same time. And so I know this. If I pass them, Scott is driving. If they pass me, Amy is driving. They say, the female. I don't know what it is about the females. But they're, they're all about uh, the driving. But Jehu carried out the will of the Lord in regard to whom? Who did Jehu eradicate? Or what did he eradicate? The ha- we need some study on the kings. Uh, the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab. And so because of that, God promised him... Even though he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, promised him four generations to sit upon the throne. So Jehu actually has the longest dynasty of all the kings of Israel. But we're not talking about all that this morning. We're talking, focusing on Judah. How many kings of Judah, and this is not a full list, would you call good kings? And now I'm calling out you who have taught the Bible classes of our little ones. It's not that big a deal. But uh, how many good kings of Judah were there? You say, well, I'll see five smiley faces. But uh, wait a minute, that might be a six smiley face at the bottom. How many good kings were there? Of course, some of it's subjective as you look at the story of, of their whole life. I'm going to suggest to you that in the whole list of kings, if we can end up with six, we did well. And one who's often called a bad king actually had an epiphany, a spiritual epiphany at the end of his life and actually humbled himself before God, even though he was a very wicked king. Now, I will say this, uh, I put an extra unhappy face on Athaliah. You know, that's the daughter of Jezebel who took over the reign when Ahaziah died. And what did she do? She was one wicked grandma. She killed all of the king's sons. Except for one who was preserved. Who preserved Joash? Until he was old enough to be presented as the lineage of David and to be a king. At, I think he was, what, eight? Seven or eight? Who, who saved him? This is, who's that? And who was that? <laughs> well, you get extra credit for going that far. It is Jehoiada. Jehoiada and Jehoshaba preserved Joash. And under the tutelage of Jehoiada, Joash became a a godly man, a good king, uh, for a while. And then he ultimately has a prophet killed. 
the son of Jehoiada the priest. Uh, you talk about a way to express gratitude, uh, that's, not, that's not it. And so we're going to be looking at the first king who is a good king in Judah. And what was said about this king that indicates that he was a good king? What phrase is mentioned over and over again like the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat? What phrase is mentioned to indicate a good king in Judah? Does anything ring a bell? Like, like his father David. Yeah, that's it. He did what's good in the sight of the Lord and he walked in the ways of his father David. And so here is uh, David's great, great grandson. That's who we're talking about. Four generations. There were Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijam, and Asa. His great, great grandson is the first king of Judah to walk in the ways of the Lord all of his days. More on that we will study. But these kings that get the smiley face, okay, Joash, Amaziah, and Ahaziah, I'll tell you by the end, I'm giving them all an unsmiley face. And I'm doing that in introduction to tell you that while characteristically their reign may be good, they led the people by example, and a lot of this has to do with the worship they approved of, the worship they promoted, that it was not corrupted by false deities and false worship. And so God was approving of that, but personally, individually, these three kings did not end well at all. And that's an interesting study, and we can talk about the spiritual implications in terms of salvation for those guys. And then as we come down further in history, I sort of like this approach better. Amaziah, well, he was mostly good. <laughs> I, like, I like that versus a good or a bad. And again, Uzziah and Jotham, uh, they get often listed in the good kings because at the beginning they did follow the ways of David and they walked in the ways of the Lord but didn't go so well through the entirety of their reign. And then there's Manasseh who was bad for most of his reign of 55 years, but repented at the end, and the Lord heard his prayer. You know, so what? how does that pan out on the day of judgment? And uh, so Jotham, uh, these, these are kings that seemingly only good things, mostly good things were said about them. Of course, Hezekiah uh, being one of the more notable kings toward the end, Hezekiah and Josiah. And so we're going to talk about King Asa uh, starting good and ending bad. And I call this highlights, lowlights, and the taillights. And somebody said, is this about women getting their hair done? I mean, highlights and lowlights, and then they've spent an hour and a half at the hairdresser. They get in the car, and you see their taillights as they drive off furiously uh, like Jehu uh, somewhere else. No, no, it's, it's not about getting your hair done. It is about the positives of King Aza's 40-year, four-decade reign. Uh, then some of the negatives that unfold in the latter years, in the last decade of his reign. And what we are to learn in retrospect 
as we look at the life of Asa. And we'll be focusing on the highlights and the taillights this morning, not the lowlights. We're going to save the lowlights till Wednesday. Supposedly there's a couple preachers coming, uh, Chuck Durham and Chris Emerson. We'll see if they show. Uh, they said, they told me they're coming. Uh, they're longtime friends of mine. We'll see what they know about the lowlights of King Asa. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. And that is chapter 14 of Second Chronicles. We could look at the king's narrative. Uh, there's some things repeated from the king's narrative in the Chronicles narrative. But it's a much shorter version of the story. It's, it's like 17 verses, 18 verses. It's, it's not very long. Uh, has, which Asa's story, you would think it would be longer when you, three chapters are devoted to it in Second Chronicles. Does somebody, anybody know a difference between how the chronicler tells the narrative of the story of the kings versus the way the king's accounts tell the stories, Drew? Yeah, I think there is a more uh, spiritual, educational emphasis of Second Chronicles, whereas the first is just giving you the historical, good and bad, uh, of the kings. Chronicles is more about the teaching aspect of what we can learn about the lives of the kings. What are the spiritual ramifications? What other generations need to learn about the errors of the past that led to such a serious conclusion? for the kings, uh, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, and of course the destruction by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So chapter 14 is all positive about the reign of Asa. Tomorrow we're going to be looking at Azariah the prophet and the challenge that he issues, the reaffirming of covenant commitment, uh, then the wicked queen mother. There's some, there's some women not to emulate uh, in these stories, the, the wicked queen mothers and Maacah was one. Remember, his father and grandfather were not walking in the ways of David. And these kinds of influences, like happened with Solomon, his great-great-grandfather, his great-grandfather, uh, you know, that has to be dealt with. People are influential. She's influential in the kingdom. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. And the statement that Asa's heart was blameless all his days. You're looking at that. We'll look at the king's account, what it says about Asa. And we'll go, how does that pan out with chapter 16? Because in chapter 16, there's not much good happening uh, for Asa. There is spiritual erosion. And then Hanani, the seer, enters. Much like Nathan enters to speak to David, but with different results. Uh, than Nathan got with David. And then the anger of Asa as a result of that message. And then the final epitaph of Asa's life is he failed to seek the Lord when he was diseased. Okay, so that's a preview of what we're going to study. And now we're going to read Second Chronicles 14, 
And I'm just simply calling this making faith real. Let's read it together. Second Chronicles 14. So Abijah slept with his fathers. And that's his, his father, Asa's father. And they buried him in the city of David. And his son, Asa, became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Well, that's a good way to start. I mean, you think about the reigns of our presidents uh, are eight years. And so it was more than a double term of one of our presidents. Ten years of his reign were peaceful and the land was undisturbed. A king could get a lot done if he wasn't facing threats and opposition from without. And Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and the high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim. So there was some false worship that he had to deal with. And he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. If we could just get more rulers to, to make these kinds of, of edicts and commands. Uh, seek after God. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, and the kingdom was undisturbed under him. Now, why was there so much warfare and battle during the reigns of these kings? What, what, what do you think that was all? Why are they such a warring bunch of folks? We, we still have uh, wars and rumors of wars. As, as Jesus talked about some signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem, there, there are still wars and rumors of wars. The, the taking of territory increases wealth and power. And Israel is in a strategic place in the world. It is the trade route for north and south. And you see that during the Greek Empire period, when you read the book of Daniel, chapter 11, when it says the king of the south went against the king of the north, and the king of the north, the Seleucid kings, went against the Ptolemies, the kings of the south. And the, what was right in the middle? Israel. <laughs> Israel's right in the middle. And so the trade routes went through the nation of Israel. That's why David and Solomon amassed such wealth, because they had the power to actually control the region, and to expand the kingdom. And so great wealth was flowing into the kingdom under the reigns of David and particularly Solomon. And yet when they lost power, when territory was removed from them, when they were weakened militarily, then they were sitting ducks. And people like Antiochus Epiphanes came in. He was mad. That's what, he was mad uh, because the Romans had sent him home. And, and so he came back and ransacked Jerusalem and did the abomination of desolation in the temple. He just took it out on the lowly Jews as, as he went home. And so, so it, was, it was an important and strategic place to occupy. And so you couldn't go for very long before someone's going to test you. And the Ethiopians are coming to test Asa. Certainly he displayed a great amount of strength in the beginning, there's still a lot of leftover from the reigns of David and Solomon in terms of strength. 
And so now he's going to be tested. And of course there's uh, the civil wars that keep happening between Israel and Judah all the time that weaken both of them uh, because they were antagonistic toward each other. Okay, so that's why there's always warfare going on. Even, even if you're faithful to God, doesn't mean you're not going to have that kind of opposition. No, no it will, those qualities that we talked about last night will not produce peace. Lovers of self and their own interests, and that's, that's what it is a lot of times. They don't care who they have to trample, who they have to kill, who they have to hurt or maim in order to take what they want. Now, now remember, there's a history here. Because the iniquity of the Amorite was full, God allowed Israel to take the land of promise, and they killed a lot of people. They killed most of the inhabitants of the land. In fact, they should have killed more than they did. And that was the problem in the judges. Those people that remained became a snare to them. And so when Israel powerfully comes in, and they were the dread of all the earth, when they came in and conquered Palestine like they did, and every king who was sitting on a tell, who, who built up a city, and they, were, they had a fortress, and every fortress was falling to Israel, that fame spread throughout the world. King after king after king was conquered. And so what happens even now? There's dispute about territory, right? Over in the middle of e- Middle East. This is ours. This was our people's way back when. Well, ultimately it wasn't yours. Uh, if, you, if you want to go back far enough, it was ultimately someone else's. But they're always arguing about what is theirs and what's been taken from them and we're going to take it back. And I'm sure there was a lot of that in biblical times. Our people used to control this land. And so we're going to take it again. And so it's just, it's just a grab for land and power. Okay, so look at verse 6. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. There are some phrases that I have underlined in 2 Chronicles 14 and that's one of them. The Lord had given him rest. I... I like you, you're, you're leading my people the way I want, and so he brings a period of rest. It's interesting in Acts 3, repent and be converted, Acts 3.19, what? You're getting to where I'm going. But, but before, before that, it says repent and be converted, that your Sins might be blotted out, and then, yeah, that times or seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice that what does not follow is complete, full, constant refreshing, times of refreshing from the Lord. I mean, there are seasons and times and periods where he brings refreshment to his people. And so this was a period of refreshing for Asa. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. Asa knew why they had rest. That it was their relationship with the Lord. Their faithfulness to the Lord. And then I have this underlined, so they built and prospered. This is what kings did. 
in their zenith, in their prime, when things were going well. They built things. Solomon talks about that in Ecclesiastes 2. All the building and planting of things that he did. All the Assyrian kings were big into that. The, what are some of the historical things? The, the, the Garden of Babylon or whatever? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You know that some historians are saying that actually Nebuchadnezzar did not build those. And the reason why they're saying it is archaeological discoveries have shown that an Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was it Sennacherib? No, I can't remember which one it is now, who was the great builder, that he actually probably built these hanging gardens, and when Nebuchadnezzar took over the world, they became his. And that if he had built them, there would be more written in the inscriptions that we have from the days of Nebuchadnezzar about what he did. But, but he doesn't, there's no mention of those about how he built these beautiful gardens. And so they actually think it was an Assyrian king that preceded him uh, that built an aqueduct system that allowed those, those gardens to grow, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I think the History Channel might have uh, uh, that information if you ever see that show. So they built things just like David did, just like Solomon did. And notice verse 8. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears. They were well equipped. And this all started, of course, with David. But, and 280,000 from Benjamin. You know, some of the tribe of Benjamin would actually be incorporated uh, into Judah ultimately. Bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them were valiant warriors. Verse 9. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. I mean, they were going to control the plains. If a battle is taking place in the plains, they have 300 chariots. That would be a distinct military advantage. And one of the things that helped Judah and Israel is all of the hilly terrain that they occupied. It certainly helped them. Uh, in, to ward off military conquest. But in the plains, they would be at a disadvantage with those 300 chariots. And verse 10. So Asa went out to meet him. And they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Marashah. Okay. This is a severe mismatch. 300,000 against a million. Now, we've seen some wars in Israel's past where the number, the number of men isn't going to determine the outcome. Who was it that won with just 300? Gideon. And they were just banging pitchers and stuff. You know, it's, you don't need to have a bigger army. But you do need the Lord. And so in verse 11... Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. He knows he is outmanned and outgunned. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name 
have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Notice he didn't say against us. This is an assault against God. And he realized this is God's name that's in the balance. God, you need to show who you are to these adversaries. Um, There's interesting, just in the Hebrew here, I have this marked in my Bible, and I'm not completely sure the significance of it, but Yahweh, which is the name often translated Lord, Jehovah, uh, precedes the use of Elohim, which is God. And it's the same every time, three different times in verse 11, when it says the Lord, he is God, that's Yahweh Elohim. In the middle of the verse where it says, O Lord, our God, for we trust in you, Yahweh Elohim. And then at the end, Lord, you are our God, Yahweh Elohim. So, uh, I mean, he's seriously invoking God and his name by this prayer. Look, I've got nothing here. This is going to depend on you. I I have no answers here. And we'll, we'll reflect on that in a moment. And so let's go over to 2 Chronicles 20 just for a second. A similar thing happens with the next king, Jehoshaphat, who is confronted by the Ammonites and the Moabites. Yeah, that's the relatives, the descendants of Lot, the relatives that they spared on the way in. Now they're they're becoming a snare. And, and so they have a very formidable task here to defeat them. And so then comes Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the prophet. And here's what he says, verse 17. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. In verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out in the wilderness of Tekoa. And Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. They've had a word from God that says they're going to be victorious. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in the prophets. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. I love this battle. This this to me is one of the ultimate battles in the Old Testament. Who are we going to put in the front? We're going to put the experienced warriors, the valiant men. No, we're going to put the singers in front. They, they put the singers right up front uh, of the warriors. And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah. So they were routed. And like so many armies, uh, several armies throughout Israel's history that they fought against, Uh, They were confused. The armies were confused and they destroyed one another. 
like they did in the days of Gideon. You know, when you got the Lord on your side, some really incredible, extraordinary things happen where the guys actually start fighting themselves and killing each other. And that happened here. And so you don't even have to fight, God says, in the days of Jehoshaphat. Just trust me. And so they gathered together and sang and praised God, and he routed Moab and Ammon. So something similar is happening here in Second Chronicles 14 as an appeal is made to God. In verse 12, it simply says, So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. It's interesting to me that in a lot of these stories, you have all of this buildup to the conflict, and then the conflict's told in about six to ten words. That's it. I mean, a battle of 300,000 versus a million, and all you really get is, well, uh, the Lord's people won, and that's all you really need to know. All the details and the specifics. Uh, sometimes we're given a few details, you know, they followed them here and there. But like in 1 Samuel 17, they followed them after Goliath was killed. But, but the real import of the story is the conflict between David and Goliath. Because that, that really is the crux of the whole thing. And, and David kills the champion Philistine, and now the, the details, there's some details that are provided. But, but again, it's all just going to take place because faith won the day. Faith wins the day. And that's really the application for us, making faith real and alive. Faith wins the day. It always has. Somebody tell me the context of this statement in the New Testament. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Yeah, and, and so how has she demonstrated this kind of faith, the story that Jesus tells? She was persistently petitioning the judge to give her justice, and ultimately she wore him down. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right and so respond? Uh, is Jesus' conclusion. And I love when Jesus tells these stories. I even like it when Luke tells you why he told the story. So that all times we might pray and not lose heart. Faith wins the day. So when you pray to God, you get the answer like you wanted the very first time. Does that work for you? Leon, does that work for you? That doesn't always work that way, does it? Now, sometimes God might respond immediately to the request, but not always immediately. And I think that's one of the things Jesus is pointing out. This woman was persistent. You know, if you only pray once about something, what might that say? It's not that big a deal. You, you didn't really want it that badly, whatever it was. You, you weren't really that concerned with God intervening for the solution because you prayed about it one time. Is there an example where a person prayed several times before God actually responded? 
Hannah would be one in the Old Testament, a good one. What about in the New Testament? Can you think of one? Paul asking for the thorn to be removed. Yeah, Elizabeth in the vein of Hannah, but Paul, three times he asked that his thorn might depart. And it was on the third time, and this has always intrigued me, that God says, Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going to take it away. My faith, my grace is sufficient for you. Faith is perfected in weakness. And, and so it was the third time that he finally said, I'm not, I'm not going to give you this. I'm not going to remove your thorn. So my question is, why do you have to pray three times? You know, and, but, but certainly the example tells us that we need to be persistent in prayer. And we might need to pray many times. So we say, well, I've, I've prayed for my child to be restored to faith. I'm sure there are some in this audience who have, who have children who are not serving the Lord. One of my ch- children is not presently. And we pray about that. And we probably prayed about that a lot more than three times. And yet, why, you know, things haven't changed yet. Yeah, it's, it's a demonstration of our faith to pray persistently because we know that he's hearing. It's, it's like uh, the, the Syrophoenician woman, who, who uh, the Gentile, who would not be shoved away. She was persistent because there was something that she wanted. And ultimately, Jesus gives her her request. and says, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel. So it's a test of our faith. Do you really believe God is going to intervene? And God always intervenes on his timetable. Things are often not fixed in a moment. Things are often not provided in a moment. I, I do a sermon called Waiting on the Lord. How many, how many miracles do we see in the New Testament where the illness was endured for over 30 years? Or the woman with the hemorrhage, 12 years. And she had spent all that she had on doctors. And, and she didn't get her solution for 12 years. And what a marvelous example she now serves to us These people had no idea that we would be reading their story 2,000 years later and learning from what happened to them. Some of them waited a long time, even in regard to the promises of God. Does anybody know how long Abraham waited from the time of the initial promise until Isaac was born? Weren't ready for that one this morning, were you? Good answer. Nova's got it. 25 years. That's two and a half decades from the time of the promise and halfway through well about 11 years they said well hey let's use one of the conventions of the day uh you can go into the handmaid and we can help god out uh and we can have a son by the handmaid and that could be our son and so they do all of that and god says mm, that's not gonna be it and now you've got a problem hagar has to be sent on her on her way because there are problems between her and sarah and now you've got this 
other whole nation, the Ishmaelites, that God blesses because he's a descendant of Abraham. And so now you're going to have to deal with the Ishmaelites in the future because you tried to take matters into your own, own hands. And so we learn a lot, and that book, Knowing God, actually put me onto this 37 years ago about how God is developing the faith of Abraham along the way. I mean, his, he comes from an idolatrous background. And so he is, he's being cultivated, his faith is being cultivated as he waits. And our faith is being cultivated while we wait. And sometimes we look back in our lives, and sometimes you have to be about our age to see it. You look back and you say, wow, I see the hand of God in all of that. And, and it all didn't get fixed in a day. It all didn't get fixed in a year. Oh, that what was so negative of an experience for me, look at all the positives that came out of it. And I, and I would suggest that God is doing things in our lives that are so complicated that we'll never know. We'll never know all the veins and arteries of God's works and what they mean in the world. You know, you, you may be helping just one person who then is able to help hundreds and thousands of people over time. It, it's, it's hard to know. I, I just need to do the work that God places right in front of me the things that I can do right here, right now, you don't know all the ramifications of that. Those people that I mentioned, uh, the blind man, the lame man, in, in John 5 and John 9, uh, the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15, they have no idea how God's going to use that story. They're going to be a part of history. Some unnamed Gentile woman serves a significant place in the history of man. Uh, Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat, who I mentioned earlier. Jehoshaphat says, it was right, I got to do something. All the king's sons are being slaughtered. And she takes the little Joash, the baby, and takes, it's what any compassion and caring, but hey, she's putting her life at risk by taking this action to save one of the king's sons from murderous bad grandma. And, and she just does the right thing at that time. And we're still reading about her. And she has a name. Her name is in Scripture. You know, and, and some women's names are not recorded. <laughs> like Nitzvet. It's not found in Scripture. I mean, it's, which is again a testimony to God wrote this book. And that's what I see in these stories where you have all this build up to a war. And you see God's involvement in it. You see a victory. The Lord routed the Ethiopians. End of story. That's enough of that. I, the details of the battle are irrelevant. What's important here is faith. And what is important for us is faith in our circumstance. Our battles will not be on the same scale as Aces and Jehoshaphat's. But they are nonetheless significant and challenging, and draining to us. And we just have to understand that the faith that we used 
to come to the Lord in the first place must continue throughout our lives. It is not a step of, a step of faith that leads to eternal salvation. It is an ongoing life of faith. And these stories teach us that. I mean, once saved, always saved is debunked in the story of the kings. I mean, you, God is expecting a faithful response in our lives. Continued trust and devotion no matter what. And there's something about, and this is where I wanted to address this audience over the next couple of days. And I want you to be thinking about this. I'm going to give you 24 hours to sleep on this. There's something about the passing of time that affects faithful response. And I want you to help me understand what that is. What happens to people over time? They, their faith was vibrant and alive. Asa, man, he starts so incredibly well. We've got a problem here. I'm going to take it to the Lord. He's going to provide victory, and he does. And, and, and he is so spiritually strong. And yet by the end of his story, he is sadly, remarkably, very weak in faith. And so I want you to tell me how that happens. What does the passing of time do to us? All right, let's pray and we'll pick up with chapter 15 tomorrow morning. Our awesome God, we know that as we gather here to study and to look at the life of your servant Asa in days of old, that there are lessons to be learned for our lives that we are to model the faith that he demonstrated in the early part of his reign. When confronted with troubles and anxieties and concerns, distresses, that we need to understand that you are our champion, that you are the Lord, our God, and that you are mightier and bigger than all of our problems, and that ultimately, ultimately, you will deliver us and we will be rewarded as your children with everlasting joy in your presence, fullness of joy and pleasures forever. And so we ask our God for strength to fight the spiritual battles of our days, the battles that we're confronting now, the struggles and difficulties we face today, but we ask for strength that we might persevere that we might endure to the end to be saved. We do not want to miss your glory and your well done. We want to be in your presence forever. And so we ask for your blessings to come upon each of us that we will not lose faith and lose sight of what is most precious of all things in our lives. In Jesus' name. And we are dismissed.